Hey everybody, welcome to another podcast, Hints and Guesses. And I wanted to start first by thanking so many of you for listening and for responding back with a few comments and questions. Keep them coming. I'd love to hear your thoughts on maybe some other ideas, topics, questions worth tackling. Not that I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm going to tackle them, but um, sort of some uh, things that are coming up for you that are worth uh, voicing. Maybe it will inspire me to keep going. I am enjoying the podcast, so if you want to support the podcast, I suppose, tell your friends. Leave a review on iTunes. All that kind of stuff helps very word of mouth, this sort of thing. It's kind of amazing. It's amazing technology. I can sit here in my office and an hour later, if I want, I can put it on the interwebs. Anyway, I wanted to return to the mythopoetic on today's episode. And I wanted to dig around in some of that territory and Um, give you a few resources, perhaps, or at least things that have helped me along the way. But before I do that, I wanted to try to address the question of why, why mythopoetic in the first place? Why move in this direction? And particularly when it comes to stories and texts, why read on a mythopoetic level. Why not just stick to the pure story that has enough treasure of its own? Or why not tackle the context where you think a little background will provide what you need to know about the story? And it certainly opens many doors. What is it about the mythopoetic? What I think of as the deeper undercurrents of the stream in which these stories operate. And the answer to that question is actually not that you get the deeper meaning of the story, as if it's just a pearl inside the mouth of a clam, and if you pry hard enough, you'll be able to possess this thing. I don't think it's like that at all. Though I, of course, think the more effort you bring, perhaps if you dive down under this sea with a knife and flippers and a mask, you can pry open a few clams here or there and um, perhaps find a few treasures you didn't know were there from the story itself. And, um, but again, that's that's not really what I think is alluring about the mythopoetic. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about having a conversation with myth, which is also the same thing as having a conversation with archetype. Archetypes are patterns, deep patterns of the unconscious and of what it means to be a human being that appear in stories, in images. And part of developing a more mythic imagination is beginning to have a conversation with these archetypes. 
with these images, with these ancient images that reside in the deep structure of the psyche or of what it means to be a human being. They're in there. Like I said before, we don't come into the world, it appears, as a tabula rasa, as a blank slate. We come into the world bearing certain images in our deep structure that aren't just arbitrary. Of course, we have our instincts too, which shape our actions and feelings and beliefs. But these archetypal patterns tend to point the way toward one's ultimate place in the world. So a mythopoetic reading is, is beginning a conversation with this. So let me say it as plainly as I can. Why do this? To awaken to the conversation that only you can have with the world. That's what's in the, in the clam's mouth. Not the meaning of the story as if it can be possessed and, you know, build a whole career being a theologian around explaining what all this stuff means to other people. Blah, blah, blah. But rather, it helps us awaken to the conversation that only we can have with the world. That only you can have with the world. That's close to a belief. That is a belief. <laughs> That I have, that all human beings are meant to have a kind of ultimate conversation with the world. And if you don't like the word conversation, an ultimate place in the world, a way of being in the world, a destiny, a um, their life itself, your life itself as art, as a creative flowering that only you can express in the world. And part of the terror and beauty of being a human being is that you have to dive down for such a thing. It's not so on the surface. And things like our ego and our everyday persona and personality and even who we think we are, like who we are on the Myers-Briggs, our Enneagram number and all this kind of stuff, all these useful ways of framing our ordinary persona, which again, really, really helpful, tend to at a certain point, block us from the deeper dive into a more mythic, more imaginative, more archetypal um, image of who we are, which then we are to bring forth into the world. That's why we have these, that's why we read on this level. So when we read the Jacob and Esau story and we begin to uncover these much deeper streams of what it means to be a human being. In this case, it's uh, perhaps what it means to be a male, but I, I wouldn't hold it exclusively to that there, but that there is within us a wild self, a wild, natural, indigenous hunter, gatherer, one who will throw all caution to the wind, passionate, erotic, hairy beast at the bottom of the lake to use Robert Bly's reference to Iron John, bucket by bucket by bucket, we scoop out the lake to find a hairy wild beast at the bottom. That lives within us. That is in conversation with or in tension with the tent-dwelling, educated, sophisticated Jacob figure 
who is actually quite manipulative but can get things done in the world and end up being the firstborn and so forth. When we begin to trip and fall into these tensions, we begin to trip and fall into our own deeper conversation with who we are. Who are we really? Who are we at the bottom of this? And maybe there's some uncovered dimension of the thing we're supposed to bring forth in the world that I haven't yet brushed upon. And who I think I've been up to this point is no longer serving me. And a a more mythic reading drops us down into these sorts of questions. It's much more like opening to a kind of underworld conversation. Or, you know, leaving the shallow end of the pool. And it might not necessarily, like if we're thinking about biblical texts or sacred stories from the Bible, it might not be even necessarily a conversation about God. Of course, I wouldn't divide up the world so neatly between, well, this relates to the human psyche or soul or destiny, and this over here relates to God. Maybe they're all tangled up in a web, in a mess. That's my uh, intuition. But in other words, I'm saying that because we don't necessarily engage in the mythopoetic reading because we think we're going to uncover the truth about God. Actually, what we hope to brush against, and only brush against, no one gets to the bottom of this, but we begin to brush against our deeper mystery of who we are really. And as Thomas Merton says, in some mysterious way, when we stumble upon the true self or the deeper self, who we are beneath all of our games and programs and self-improvement projects, we actually touch upon God in the mystery of the human soul, which is at the heart of the, the great Christian paradox that the flesh and the divine are somehow inter mingled or intermixed. So that's the kind of work I'm committed to. I mean, just in my own life, I'd like to uh, touch upon (laughs) the this kind of paradoxical mystery of existence. Imagine if you and I were born into the world to bring something forth. Imagine if you and I are born into the world to do something or to be something. And I don't mean primarily vocational, though you might find your way through a vocation, but meant to inhabit the world and bring forth the beauty of your own creative capacities for the benefit of the entire world, for the benefit of the relationships around you, for the benefit of the natural Uh, environment you find yourself in. Imagine if that's the case. Imagine if we're not just random accidents or in a religious sense, pre-programmed robots that are, you know, God is using as pawns. I don't buy that. But some seed waits within us to grow against the future sky think that's David White or an allusion to a David White poem. Anyway, I think something like that is true. And 
I think part of the second half of life, perhaps, and of course it can start much earlier, is the recovery, discovery of such a thing. And the mythopoetic reading of even sacred texts and um, also more than that, when we begin to read our life in such a way, we begin to put on the mask and get, grab our flippers and head to the bottom of the ocean and see what's there. Anyway, all right, enough said about that. I wanted to maybe mention a few things that have influenced me, and then I want to turn to the Jacob story again, but this time his use of the latter, and just make a few comments. So first of all, in a very general sense, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, something about the conversation about spirituality has changed dramatically in the last 50 years or so. And some of what's changed dramatically is talk of stages of faith. I mean, we you can begin with James Fowler, who I read a number of years ago now, his book Stages of Faith, which even the statement alone is a bit surprising. Is that really the case? Are there stages that one has to pass through? And that's a very different idea than it's a simple matter of believing these five things or ten things or three things and then you're good to go. Uh, and you're just it's just a matter of putting them into practice or something like that. No, that as it relates to human psychological development, just as there are stages in uh, our physical maturation and our psychological maturation, the same is true of our spiritual maturation, that we pass through these stages. And so James Fowler is something, someone that influenced me a little bit um, and relates to... Uh, a different conversation about about meaning and um, and about the biblical text and let's see who else uh, I think Richard Rohr I think has nine stages I think those are definitely worth checking out and then um, of course Ken Wilbur Ken Wilbur has his um, spiral dynamics he didn't invent spiral dynamics but he sort of I don't know mastered it or uh, popularized it and of course, Rob Bell has also been really rooting a lot of his work in the last few years in terms of uh, spiral dynamics. Um, so he's making making it uh, popular to people like me and and you, perhaps. Um, but this is the idea that that um, actually history itself kind of matures and grows, and there are stages or levels and. Now it's fancy to talk about levels of consciousness, and there's a lot of truth to that. You, um, and I won't go through them all right now, or really any of them. I'll just I'm just referencing the idea more broadly that um, it doesn't appear to be the case that you can do a nonstop flight from kind of a lower level of thinking, consciousness, stage of faith, spirituality straight to enlightenment. It just simply doesn't work that way. Uh, you may move up, you may move up and down these levels or stages, but in terms of 
general growth and maturity, I think every level appears to have its own gifts. And uh, who else? I think Bill Plotkin has uh, influenced me for sure. And he has eight stages. And he's not so much talking about stages of faith, but he's talking about growing up from birth and early childhood all the way to becoming an elder, which we desperately, desperately need in our elderless culture right now, where we just have a bunch of older people, many of whom are still stuck in junior high consciousness, which seems to be very obvious where it's who's the biggest, best, fastest, who can win races, um, who's got the strongest muscles. And that's very male, of course. Um, I don't want to speak into the particular uh, feminine journey, um, but maybe you could give that some thought yourself. Certainly, it seems to be a kind of pervasive junior high consciousness going on right now, which tells us something about um, what needs to happen in the world. Namely, we need to grow up. And the question is, how do we grow up? Now, why am I mentioning all this? Because it seems very, very obvious that we tend to read particularly the biblical stories from the level of consciousness that we largely operate in. Or if you want to think about it as countries, the country that we happen to be inhabiting, we read and understand the great stories and also the story of our own life from that level of consciousness, which is totally fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But it gives all of us some pause, and we have to start saying, wait a minute, if this, and this is maybe post, you know, postmodern thought in general, that I cannot, there's no such thing then as a purely objective reading of anything. It's subjective. I'm mixed up in the reading itself. I'm mixed up in the reading of the Bible. I cannot help it. I bring my own um, uh, ideas images, background, hang-ups, wounds, fears, gifts to the story itself, and I can't help it. And it might be the case that I have a kind of arrested development somewhere in my own psycho-spiritual growth process. I may, might be stuck somewhere. And actually, my whole culture might be stuck somewhere, or my specific religious culture, which of course you see with the evangelicals, not all of them, of course, but um, I'm only speaking that because that's the world that I came from. They can easily be stuck at a particular level of consciousness and largely reading the worlds through us versus them, um, who's in the in-group and who's not, uh, who's chosen, um, who's really saved and who's not really saved. Um, these are the concerns of a certain stage. Totally okay place to pass through, but you don't want to get stuck there. And therein lies the invitation, I think. Once you stumble upon these stages or levels of reading um, and that you might be caught up in them, I think it kind of kneecaps you a little bit. At least that's what happened to me. 
because I thought if I really rent, went on the investigation of cultural context and I really got to the bottom of language and nuance and, and I knew all the right scholars and I was a master of footnotes and, and I knew Hebrew this and blah, 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 that I could discover the truth, which also, I think, unconsciously meant the truth of my own life. Um, but that if I really took the objective route, I could get there. Whereas the big insight in the last 50 years is that's just simply not how it works. And it's humiliating to see that our thinking patterns and um, our thinking processes and our stage of psychological and spiritual maturation influences how we see the world, influences how we read the text, and even influences our theology. If you want to be even more direct, we tend to understand God from the level of our own consciousness. We tend to put that on God. If we have a consciousness that is still largely us versus them, junior high consciousness, perfect for junior high, and who's in the inn, who gets picked out on the playground um, for, for kickball first, and who gets picked last, and who's not even welcome on the team, that kind of stuff. If that's our view of the world, even if it's largely unconscious, that's our view of God. God then is more of a tyrant. He is playing the us versus them game. He's dividing the world up and so forth and so on. And if, if you come back to my pod, couple podcasts ago when I was talking about Brueggemann's insight, Torah, prophets, and wisdom, you tend to see the same kind of unfolding that I'm trying to describe here. You tend to see the same stages of development. The Torah, the law, the who's an Israelite and who's not. Um, like I'm thinking now of um, there's this kind of frightening passage that no Moabite, no Moabitess, no Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord up to the seventh generation, which is like an extreme way of saying forever. If you have any Moabite blood, you cannot come to the temple. You're not welcome. You're totally 100% out of the chosen people. Yet, that's Torah. That's early stage consciousness. That's us versus them. That's a God that divides the world up. And if you read the world the way, that way you read God that way. And then all of a sudden you have the prophets coming along. You have a book like Ruth that describes Ruth, a Moabite, ends up being the grandmother, I think, or great-grandmother, can't remember which, of King David. That King David has Moabite blood, which, according to the Torah, you'd say, that's not allowed. He can't be the king. He can't be, you know, sorry, you can't march into the temple. You can't build a temple. Of course, he didn't build a temple, but you know what I'm saying. Um, you're not a part of the chosen people. And that's um, a, um, a development in human consciousness that tends to see, wait a minute, maybe the world is not so black and white. Maybe the outsider is included. Maybe the widow, the alien, the orphan, the foreigner, the undocumented is actually totally welcome in my house. And once you see the world that way, once, you're, once you develop into that stage, so to speak, you tend to view God that way, and which explains why you know, two different religious groups can read the exact same te 
text and come to wildly different conclusions. It's not because of the ambiguity of the Bible necessarily. It's because of what they're bringing to the story. And um, and if we stick with Brueggemann here, the, and if you bring in start bringing wisdom, mystery, you start to see that the entire world is not divided up. That the subject-object approach to all things, the rational, logical, subject, object, um, I am me and you are you, and, there, and that, that intense uh, need for separation, because that's how we come to know ourselves, begins to dissipate in the mystery of our own intermingled reality, which of course science now is saying is actually the case. And on an atomic level, the world is a lot uh, more integrated and mixed up than we once thought. And here's where science and mysticism seem to be holding hands, if not at times even speaking the same language. Now, if what I'm saying is true, how do you move? How do you grow up? Because here is what I've experienced in my own life. When I first read Ken Wilber, integral spirituality. I was like, holy crap. I have never heard anything like this. And pretty soon I thought because I had read it, because I understood the colors of spiral dynamics, I was therefore at the somehow the higher stage stages or levels because I knew what they were, which I don't know, is maybe just that's the way the ego tends to operate in the world. It starts clinging immediately to something and saying, well, I'm definitely that now. Um, Only to find out tragically that maybe it doesn't really work that way. And I am a believer. I put this in my my book recently, this uh, Bitten by a Camel. I put this quotation from Teilhard, above all, trust in the slow work of God that whatever it is that we're talking about, this kind of change is slow. And it's much more about developing a posture in which one is open to being wrong, to changing, uh, than it is about understanding how it works. And probably that's more important than even trying to identify where you think you are. Like, oh, for sure, I'm, you know, blue or I'm for sure orange, or um, whatever. I'm in this particular stage in Fowler's um, stages of faith. I think maybe there's a time and a place for that, but I'm not really thinking that's all that helpful. Maybe it's much more about cultivating a, a sense of openness to the mystery of change, to the fluidity of your own life and who you think you are. And suddenly you become more malleable, more like the classic image of the potter and the clay, which it comes from one of the prophets, maybe Isaiah, that you're actually malleable enough to be shaped and formed, which many religious people simply are not. And I've found myself in those moments. No way I've arrived I've made it. I, cle- I see clearly what this means, or now I know for sure what I believe, or for me it was like, now I know for sure what I don't believe. Um, that kind of rigidity 
doesn't lead to very much psycho-spiritual change. And I say psycho-spiritual as a way of combining soul, psyche, and uh, pneuma, spirit. Um, Soul-spirit change that is so desperately needed in the world. Some might even argue that you can't move. And actually, just now, that's kind of how I feel about it. You can't make yourself move. But maybe you can lower a few barriers. You can clear out a few blocks. Or if you like my metaphor in Bitten by a Camel, the camel needs to be unloaded before it can pass through the eye of the needle. It needs to be naked. There has to be some unlearning and unknowing involved to get um, light enough to be more nimble to the mysterious wind of change, which, after all, Jesus calls God. He says, the pneuma, the spirit, is like the wind. You can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. And we kind of hear that and think, well, he was just kind of kidding, you know. It can't really be that mysterious. We want certainty. But if the spirit is like the wind, I'm sorry, you have to begin to wander into a fair amount of uncertainty, unknowing, unlearning, unloading the camel, whatever kind of metaphor you need. And I'm not talking about just getting clean or purified, like, I don't know, like uh, my wife and I were talking about just this kind of obsession right now with clean living, clean food, everything has to be clean. I mean, I was even in a store the other day, and there, and the salesperson was saying, "What kind of lamp do you want? You want you want sort of like just clean lines, simple, pure." Um, which I don't know is like still seems to be some leftover remnants of even original sin that we're somehow not good enough um, or clean. And if we could just get on the right diet and um, have a Spartan enough, clean, crisp enough environment, we would be worthy turns out human beings are just way more clunky and messy than that. So I'm not talking about getting clean, but but I am talking about um, lowering our defenses and clearing out the blocks. So with that background, and maybe that wasn't super helpful, I'm just trying to, I don't know, in, in a sense, give credit to the things that have influenced me and there's a lot more there and a lot more that's worth excavating but maybe you'll hear a thread in there yourself and follow it and see where it goes I want to return to the Jacob story and this particular element of the Jacob story so Jacob the deceiver the heel grabber has deceived his brother now twice lied to his father and is and together with his mother has come out a winner so to speak by cheating his way into the birthright and the inheritance cheating his way into being the firstborn and being the patriarch of the family except now his life is in danger he can't even live into his own desire because of the means with which he achieved it, which is maybe can serve as a kind of warning to anyone who 
gets to the top by not telling the truth. If you get to the top through deception, you'll be unable to live there. You'll be unable to take your own place unless by some miracle or grace you get leveled, knocked down, destroyed, and humbled so that you can begin telling the truth again and say, actually, I got here through a series of lies. And think about our political system right now. Anyone, of course, I'm thinking you know, of Trump in particular, who seems to have a lying problem, but probably many, many politicians. And, and I know it gets under my skin, which is probably really what's really going on is that they're mirroring back to me the, my own ways that I often fail to tell the truth and use very subtle and slight manipulations to get my way and then refuse to own up to it. So that's Jacob for you. And he has to run for his life. He has to flee. And he runs away. And there's a scene change, and it's night. And he's tired, and he goes to sleep. And there's something mysterious and lovely about this image, because here is someone who has been working so hard and so crafty to get his way, but even, even he has to succumb to the mystery that is sleep, to the vulnerability and the innocence. It's almost like returning to childhood, to infancy. And in terms of you know psychological language, your ego no longer can do anything at all. Just like you can't make yourself dream anything. And that's why like ins- insomnia is um, so hard to cope with because in a way, if you can't go to sleep, you can't return to your elemental innocence, your elemental vulnerability of just lying down and closing your eyes. So it's kind of a beautiful image of Jacob lying down again. And, and it says he's sleeping on a stone pillow, which I don't know, <laughs> might sound a little uncomfortable, but maybe is an image of a, a kind of rootedness, a return to the earth itself, a return to um, the ground out of which all of us are born and shall return. That's the original insight of the book of Genesis. From dust you came to dust you shall return. And here he is closer to the earth, closer to death, and maybe even closer to the death of his own former life. We don't know. We can hope as much. And he has a dream. And in this dream, a ladder appears. And the ladder is this old archetypal mythic idea of a bridge or a ladder between the worlds, between the upper world and the underworld, between the divine and the ordinary, between heaven and earth, uh, even maybe between soul and spirit, human and divine. And and he's not controlling this. This comes as a gift as all dreams come as a gift from the dream maker and maybe even from God, from the divine in this case. And he notices that on the ladder, angels 
are ascending and descending. And angel might sound a little fancy. In Hebrew, it just means messenger. So this messenger or messengers are in constant movement up and down the ladder from the divine to the ordinary, from earth to heaven. In other words, he sees a link between the world of God and his everyday existence. And in fact, it's a little flash, it's a little insight that these worlds are not so separate. In fact, maybe they're not separate at all. In fact, something of the energies of the divine and the human, of the earth and the sky, are moving up and down the ladder constantly. And I think this is such a powerful sort of um, image for Jacob, who is living a very divided and divisive life. I'm over here. You're over there. I'm the firstborn. You're not the firstborn. I'm going to cheat my way. And there's and it leads to a tremendous um, division, separation between himself and his own family and his own brother and his father and his mother. So much so, his life is so divided and so separate. He has such a sense of the separate self at this point that he's alone, totally alone, in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere, falling asleep under the blanket of stars on a stone pillow. And in the mystery of this dream, maybe he gets his first glimpse that the world is not as divided up as you think it is. And the divine and the human are very close, are touching one another, are passing up and down the ladder. And he wakes up and says, God was in this place and I did not know it. Which, on the level of Torah, prophets, and wisdom, we're now dealing with wisdom. We're dealing with mystery. We're dealing with these ancient stories in their richest mythic, symbolic sense. What do you mean God was in this place and I didn't know it? I thought God dwelled somewhere else. That was, I mean, maybe that's more of a Western Christian concept that God is way off in heaven somewhere, up on a throne, a sort of God in the sky with a beard. But here in the story, the ancient insight is that actually the feet of the ladder or the feet of God are touching the earth. And the earth itself, the top of the ladder, is touching God. And there's passage, communication, conversation, messen messages or messengers passing back and forth. Now, the reason why I'm drawn to this image in terms of mythopoetic conversation is that I also have a sense that there's something of this ladder that is a little like the stages of consciousness or the stages of faith or the levels that we find ourselves on or the rungs of the ladder, so to speak, that we are moving up and down. And I like that image much better than fixed states where I'm in definitely in, you know, green, to use Ken Wilber's. He also calls it the mean green level. I'm definitely in green for sure. Well, maybe that happens to be a rung 
of the ladder that I'm camping out on. That's my primary waking consciousness. But the moment I slip into the unconscious, the moment there's is the moment there's fluidity and there's passage up and down the ladder. I might find myself sinking down into instincts and I might find myself soaring up into the non-dual at any moment at any time, which is another way of saying, on the one hand, in the grand scheme of history, human beings develop, I suppose. There are stages or levels of consciousness that, that, um, that civilizations and eras or eons pass through, but at any given moment, the mystery of existence means suddenly you find yourself as a messenger up into contact with the divine, into the upper realms, or sinking down to the earth or beneath the earth to the level of the soul. At any moment, passage, the passage up and down the ladder is fluid, which is why sometimes um, I think people, even who are at so-called lower stages, which could be any of us, we tend to be stuck somewhere, maybe it's an us versus them kind of thing, can be out on a walk one day and, you know, a little finch can land on a branch nearby and turn and look at this person and they can be almost raptured into a, a divine an experience of the divine, an experience of oneness, of unity, of unitive consciousness, to sound fancy, of the non-dual, of a deep sense of oneness with this creature and with God and with the universe. And they might go right back inside and hop on Facebook, terrible idea, and, you know, start reposting articles that are dividing the world up between us versus them having just left this Finch encounter, which gives us, by the way, gives me tremendous hope, if, if, if what I'm saying is true, that at any moment um, you can lay down on a pillow, so to speak, and glimpse the world that God was in this place and I did not know it. And you can find yourself traveling up and down these levels or stages of consciousness, which over time we would hope would change one's view of the world. So let's say um, you're done posting pictures on Facebook and re, you know, reposting articles that are divisive and you suddenly remember, what was that thing that happened out there with the finch? And you start getting curious about this and you start wondering, what, what, what is my view of the world? And you start asking questions like St. Francis, like, who am I really? Um, what was I, was that bird aware of me? Was I aware of the bird? Did something pass between us? Who am I? Who, who is the bird and what is the world? And St. Francis would pray, who are you God and who am I? And, and suddenly you're into the kinds of questions that make passage up and down the ladder possible, which I think is the invitation again. It's not, how do I climb the ladder, up or down? I don't think. It's not about going to a workshop and hearing about, um, you know, stages of consciousness and saying, wow, I'm glad I know that. I'm now at the higher level. No, it's about letting life itself work on us. And our more mysterious and troubling encounters, whether they be outbursts of rage 
um, at the television screen that surprise you um, or moments of, of beauty that that fill your um, chest cavity with grief and tears. These are the things we begin to turn toward, the mystery of our own life, that um, uh, make the passage between levels and stages of consciousness more permeable. Suddenly things get very thin, and you find yourself on thin ice, in other words, and at any moment you might break through. You might Your skate might fail, and you might find yourself slipping um, onto another rung of the ladder, whether it be up or down. And up or down maybe is not one is good and one is bad. Um, I mean, I think like any of these things, we have to hold these symbols loosely. What I'm saying is I think there's something of this, of Jacob's ladder, that um, mirrors back to us how we can live into our own fullness as human beings. So one of the things we have to admit, and it kind of sucks to admit, is that our identity is not fixed. Who we think we are is not fixed. It's disappointing. We want it to be fixed. We want to know for sure, even if I have to do a little work, that I'm going to get to the bottom. But we have to admit, we don't really know who we are. And we don't really know who God is. And that very posture makes it possible for us to mature and to pass up and down the ladder of our own consciousness, um, which gives us a much more holistic experience of what it means to be human instead of clinging desperately to one particular rung and that's all you ever know suddenly life moves from black and white to color or whatever kind of metaphor you'd like to use i'm thinking now of adrian rich's poem diving into the wreck and i'll just give you a few of the opening lines because it's a very long poem first Having read the book of myths, first having read the book of myths, and loaded the camera and checked the edge of the knife blade, I put on the body armor of black rubber, the absurd flippers, the grave and awkward mask. I'm having to do this not like Cousteau with his assiduous team, aboard the sun-flooded schooner, but here, alone. I think she's beginning to describe at least a little bit, at least the way I'm understanding the mythopoetic dive, is that you first read the book of myths, and those myths mirror back to you something. And you begin to get glimmers and glimpses of life and the meaning of life and the big questions of life and you're drawn to this or that character and this or that scene but at a certain point you're going to have to dive yourself you're going to have to put on the flippers grab the knife put on the mask and descend into the unconscious descend fall off the, the side of the ship and dive yourself down to the wreckage and here's the second stanza there is a ladder the ladder is always there, hanging innocently close to the side of the schooner. 
We know what it is for, we who have used it. Otherwise, it's a piece of maritime floss, some sundry equipment. So at any moment, at any time in your life, there is a ladder. And you can put on the scooter equipment and you can fall off the side or you can begin to descend the, the ladder um, down. You can fall asleep on a pillow, in other words. You can... Um, all along, the ladder was there, but you've ignored it. You thought it was just some decoration. Um, but now suddenly it's time to do the deeper dive. Now, I don't really want to give you too many more lines of this fantastic poem because, for one, I don't think I can do it justice. Probably I'd have to do a po whole podcast just on this poem. But the final line intrigues me now as I'm thinking about it. She says, we are, I am, you are, we are, I am, you are, by cowardice or courage, doesn't matter which, by cowardice or courage, the one who find our way back to this scene. This is the wreckage at the bottom that you've been diving down to. Carrying a knife, a camera, a book of myths in which our names do not appear. And this is what I think is so profound about doing the dive down to the wreck is as you begin to move around in these ancient, archetypal, imaginative, creative, mythopoetic stories and you begin combing over the wreckage and looking carefully for treasures and noticing what's been rotten away and no longer works. And you, you begin to discover that as important as these myths really are and as important as they mirror back to us something incredibly important, in the end, we do not find our own names written in these stories which I think is another way of saying we have to discover our own names, the truth of our own name, even if you want to go so far as to say the truth of our own myth that only we can live into. The stories invite us to go on the mythic journey of our own life, not just to cling to someone else's mythic journey. That's how the story unfolds. That's how the great story of being a human being unfolds. Each life bringing forth what it, it is to bring forth in the world, changing the world in only the way that person can change the world, like the story of Jacob and the telling of the story of Jacob. O only bringing what that character can bring into the world inspires us to do the deep dive into our own wreckage to bring forth what only we can bring forth in the world. So happy diving.